Does anyone here uh, know what the most polluted city in the world is? You can speak out loud if you want to take a guess. <laughs> most polluted city in the world. Beijing. Yeah, Beijing. Beijing is the most polluted city in the world. The smog is so bad uh, in Beijing that you can see it from space. You know, scientists have come up with an air quality index uh, to measure pollution in the air, and a low score is better. The lower the better. You know, a score of 25 is normal. 100 is unhealthy. Anything over 300 is extremely dangerous. Well, Beijing is in the 400s. And just last month, they set a record dangerously high level score of 500. Uh, tests have shown that current levels of air pollution in Beijing will reduce life expectancy in that city by 15 years. Okay, the average life expectancy worldwide is 71. That means if you live in Beijing, you're lucky to celebrate your 57th birthday. You know, I've never been to uh, Beijing, uh, but I have been to uh, cities like it. Uh, New Delhi, uh, in India, and Dhaka, uh, the capital city of Bangladesh. And in 1998, Dhaka, not Beijing, uh, was the most polluted city in the world. When I was there in uh, 2006, okay, the air pollution was still so bad that simply taking it in uh, gave me a really severe infection in my throat. My lymph nodes became so swollen that I could barely eat or drink. You know, it hurt to swallow. It was painful uh, to breathe. Uh, the stuff that we put in the air can literally kill you. Um, the stuff that we put in the air can be life-giving or it can be life-taking. It can choke you. It can kill you. It can destroy you. The stuff that we put in the air matters. And this is true of chemicals and, and pollutants and, and dangerous particles. But we also need to be careful with our words. You see, it's not just pollutants that we fill in the air, that we put into the air. Uh, we fill the air with our words, too. We breathe them out, right? And we take them in. And the words that surround us, this verbal atmosphere, if you will, it, too, can be life-giving or life-taking. In today's sermon, right, I want you to see three things. First of all, I want you to see that our words are powerful. They can give life or they can take it. Secondly, I want you to see that we have a problem, that we are polluted polluters. And thirdly, I want you to see that the gospel is the only thing that can change our hearts and clear the air, if you will. Well, first of all, uh, our words are powerful. If you have your uh, Bibles uh, or Bibles open, let's go back to Ephesians 4, 29, uh, and let's read it together. Paul writes here uh, in the 29th verse, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words are powerful. They can give life or they can destroy it. They can build up and give grace to all who hear. Or, they can corrupt 
and spawn all sorts of ruin. Well, let's examine this a little bit further. Our words can build up. You know, this word or phrase, build up, has a wide semantic meaning, or a wide semantic range. It can mean a lot of different things. Uh, first of all, build up can mean to create. Okay, words have the power to create, to bring things into existence. Right? The most obvious example of this is Genesis 1, where God speaks the universe uh, into being. Uh, Genesis 1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was a sea and sky. And God said, let dry land appear, okay, and it was so. On and on and on throughout this narrative, God speaks into the void, and out of that darkness comes life and light. Words are powerful. They can bring something out of nothing. They can build up and they can create. Well, you might say that's true of God, but you know, what about us? Can our words have that sort of power? Well, I want you to consider that in 1776, right? Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. It was conceived in liberty and it was conceived with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words are powerful. They can create a universe, or in our lesser case, they can create a nation. That's not all build-up can mean, right? Build-up can also mean to repair, or to heal, or restore. When something or someone is broken, our words have the power to build them up, to repair them, to heal them, to restore them. In the Gospels, Jesus is constantly doing this. He's constantly building up broken people, people who have been possessed by a demon or who have some sort of disease. He's exercising, exercising spirits with a word and dispelling sickness uh, with a word. But Jesus doesn't just heal broken, diseased people, right? He heals broken-hearted people, too. People who have been broken by society, who have been broken with words. Consider uh, the woman who had a blood discharge for 12 years. And because of this condition, this woman was deemed unclean. And she was forced to live on the outskirts of society, and the message she got from her peers was, you are not clean, you are not well. You are not welcome here. You need to stay away from us. Well, this woman gets wind of Jesus, and she thinks to herself, you know, I think if, if I could only touch his garment, I'm pretty sure I could be made well. I'm pretty sure I could be healed. So sure enough, she works her way through a crowd, and sure enough, she touches Jesus' garment, and sure enough, she's healed. Right? The bleeding stops. But the moment of this woman's healing is not simply right at that moment when she touches Jesus' garment. No, the real healing takes place when Jesus stops and he addresses her. Do you remember what he says to her? He calls her daughter. 
right, in front of a large crowd, in front of people who very likely were the ones who said, get away from us, don't come near us, you're not welcome here, right? Jesus' daughter, my child, your faith has made you well. Go and be healed of your disease. Right, to a broken woman living on the outskirts of a broken society. Jesus builds this woman up with his words. He calls her daughter. He reminds her that she has a home with him. You know, Jesus' words have the power to build up, to restore individuals, and to heal deep-seated wounds. And friends, our words have the same sort of power. They can do very much the same sorts of things. Well, the word or phrase build up can also mean to encourage, right, or to inspire others to action, right, to give strength and courage to those who are facing some daunting task, who, do, who need to do what needs to be done, right, even if that is scary or costly or hard to do. You know, when bombs were falling uh, on London and when the Nazis had overrun uh, much, of Winston, or much of Western Europe, uh, Winston Churchill built up his people with very encouraging words that were spoken over the radio. Here's some of them. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the very end. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. Right? We, shall not, we shall never surrender. Well, it's not just in wartime that we do this. It's not just in wars that we build people up, right, and encourage them. Right? We do this all the time. Parents, you do this when you tell your, your kids not to give up on algebra, right, even though it's hard. And kids, you do this when you talk to your friends and say, don't cheat on that algebra exam, even though you might get away with it. Right, church, we build each other up when you remind spouses not to give up on their vows. Or when you come along someone who's suffering and you remind them of the truths of the gospel, and you point them towards Jesus and you remind them you are not alone. God loves you very much and he has not forsaken you. He is committed to you and we are too. Right? Not only do our words have the power to build up, and I mean this in every sense of the word, right? In creating and in... Uh, in healing and in encouraging one another, right? Our words also have the power to give grace uh, to those who hear, right? Our words can give grace. Well, what does that mean, uh, that our words can give grace or show grace to someone? Well, the word grace means unmerited favor, right? It's like mercy, but it's a little bit different too. And I sometimes think of it this way. You know, imagine somebody comes up to you and they hit you. Mercy would be not hitting that person back. But grace goes a little step further. Grace would be giving that person a hug. You know, mercy is maybe the absence of punishment when punishment is deserved. But grace is the presence of love when punishment is deserved. And we will talk more about grace as we get towards the end of the sermon. But for now, simply know that when we speak words of truth where lies prevail... When we speak words of love where hatred has a foothold, right? when we speak words of forgiveness to those who have done us wrong, right? we are giving grace to those who hear. 
And grace is very, very powerful stuff. In fact, grace is the only thing that has the power to change our hearts from the inside out. A lot of this, a lot of this again, falls under the third point, but right now we're still on the first. Right now we're simply making the point that our words are powerful, and our words are powerful to build up, to encourage, to enliven, and even transform. But our words can do great harm as well. Our words can destroy, right? They can corrupt, and they can spawn all sorts of ruin. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James, Jesus' brother, said that. Now, our words are capable of good things, of building people up and giving grace, uh, but they can also corrupt, destroy, hurt, and harm. I wonder, do we have any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in here? I'm one. Yeah, I see a few others. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, do you remember Wormtum? Do you remember that guy? Right? Wormtongue is this sleazy advisor to King Theoden, right? King Theoden of Rohan. And, Ro- and, and Wormtongue has the power to bring this entire kingdom down with the power of his words, right? By polluting the mind of Theoden and by polluting his heart with his lies, he can bring this entire kingdom down. Words are powerful for great ill, but also for great good, but also for great ill. We mentioned Winston Churchill, but think about Adolf Hitler, and think about Joseph Goebbels. He was the Nazi minister of propaganda. Think about all of the horrors that were unleashed by the power of these two men's words. A couple of weeks ago, Megan and I, we went to the Banff Mountain Film, no, (laughs) that's a tough one, the Banff Mountain Film Festival, right? And there we saw a documentary about ski jumper Lindsay Vann. Uh, she's in the Olympics now. And this, uh, this whole movie was about her, her efforts to get women's ski jumping into the Olympics, and she succeeded. Well, when Lindsay Vann was eight years old, a ski instructor called her fat. You know, watching Lindsay uh, in this video, it's very clear that those words haunt her to this very day. She has a complex about her weight ever since then. She's 29 years old now. That means for 21 years, she has suffered from a careless, if not cruel, word. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with a student, a UVM student um, on campus. And this student, um, he's a bouncer at a bar downtown, in downtown Burlington. He's a jiu-jitsu fighter, right? Which is like ultimate fighting championship sort of stuff, right? I don't need to tell you that this guy is tough. Well, without any prompting on my part, I didn't mention that I was going to be preaching today, I didn't mention that I'd be preaching on this topic, this student said to me in the middle of lunch, he said, you know that saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me? He said, that's just not true. He said, you know, sticks and stones, I can can handle that. 
But words get in deep. And they can really, really hurt. You know, and I was stunned to hear this, not only because of how timely it was, but because of how true it was. You know, I think all of us in this room can relate to that. Right? We all know what it's like to be wounded by words. Right? We all carry verbal cuts and scars. Things have been said to us a long time ago that continue to haunt us. It is certainly true of me, and I think it's probably true of you too. Our words can destroy, right? They can inflict great hurt and harm, but they can also corrupt and poison and pollute, right? They can rot us from the inside. The most obvious example of this is Satan, right? That snake, that worm in the garden who filled Adam and Eve's mind and heart with lies and who fills our heart and mind with lies too. Did God really say that? That is so like him. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. Now, if you want to be free, you ought to be like me. Everything that is wrong in the world today can be traced back to these words in the garden. And I mean everything that is wrong in the world today can be traced back to these very words, these insidious and treacherous treacherous words from Satan. You know, Satan hates us, and he wants to destroy us, and he's pretty smart. He knows how to do it. He goes right for our hearts, and he fills them full of powerful lies. You know, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, and he has preached a lot on Genesis 3, and in one of his sermons, he says something that's really insightful. And I want to share that with you now. He says, in the garden, Satan does not go after the existence of God. Heck no. He knows the whole human race can believe in God. Practically, the whole human race does believe in God, and it's a mess. In the garden, Satan does not go after the law or the will or the holiness of God either. He doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you do. Instead, Satan denies the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace and the goodwill of God. He says, you can't trust him. You're going to have to take your life into your own hands. My friends, that lie went into our hearts. It's in your heart and it's in my heart and it is doing a lot of damage. When we were in our infancy, we believed the serpent that we can't trust God, that we can't trust his love. We have been ruined by the lie. Our words are powerful. They can do good. They can do harm. And we are case in point. We've been ruined by the lie. And this brings me to point number two. We are polluted polluters. We're polluted polluters. You know, before Satan showed up, everything on planet Earth was kosher. Everything on planet Earth was good. Uh, You could say there was no air pollution, there was no foul speech, there was no lies, no deception, and no hate. But all of that changed in an instant, and all it took were some words. A verbal toxin was released and has polluted the human race uh, ever since. You know, the most dangerous particles in the air are particles that are smaller than 2.5 micrometers, what scientists call PM 2.5, and that makes sense. 
Well, what makes these particles so dangerous is not how big they are, but how small they are. They're small enough to enter into our lungs, and once they get into our lungs, they're small enough to enter into our bloodstream. And once they get into our bloodstream, they go after organs like our heart. Right? And particles such as these, PM2.5, they're responsible for all sorts of health complications, like asthma and cancer and heart disease and heart attacks and so on. Well, the lies of the devil are the verbal and spiritual equivalent of PM2.5. Like these particles, they're not obvious, right? They're small, and they're subtle, and they're lethal. And like PM 2.5, the words of the devil have entered into our bloodstream, right? And they have gone after our heart. Polluted speech has polluted us. And we, like the devil, have become polluted polluters, It's not simply that we've been lied to. We now lie. It's not simply that we've been deceived. We deceive others. It's not simply that we have been abused. We abuse. And it's not simply that we have been hated, but we now hate. Everything that Paul mentions in verse 31 of chapter 4, right? All this bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice... All of these things come out of our mouths. We are polluted polluters. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, and our hearts have been ruined by the lie. So what are we to do? You know, is there any hope for us? Well, this brings me to our third and final point. So far we've said that our words are powerful, that they have the ability to give life or destroy it. And sadly, we've been ruined by the lie. We've become polluted polluters. You and I are guilty of everything that's mentioned in verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. All of this polluted speech comes out of our polluted hearts. So again, what are we to do? Is there any hope for us? Well, the answer lies in verse 32. Let's look at verse 32. It says there that we ought to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving others, these are all very good things. But trying hard to do these things in and of themselves will not change you. Right? It can't and it won't. It just doesn't have the power to But this can, knowing that God is kind and tender-hearted and forgiving of you. Now that can change, melt and renew and restore even the most polluted of hearts. You know, Joseph gave a great illustration a few weeks ago, which I, I thoroughly love. It's that illustration of a farmer who has a rotten fruit tree, right? He's fed up with this rotten fruit tree, so one day he decides he's going to take some shiny fruit and he's going to staple it to that tree. So he goes out there and chunk, 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 right? Staples shiny fruit onto his rotten fruit tree. And that tree looks great, right? For a day. But at the end of that day, that tree is still rotten. And that fruit isn't going to last very long. 
In the same way, whenever we try to do good things without paying attention to the reasons why we're doing them in the first place, without paying attention to our hearts, we're just like that farmer out there stapling fruit to a rotten fruit tree. Which is to say, if you want real and lasting and permanent change, you've got to pay attention to your roots. right? You've got to go to the roots. You've got to go to your heart. The war then over our words is not simply a war over our mouth. It's ultimately a war over our heart. And the devil is fighting for it, and God is fighting for it too. You know, ever since the garden, the devil has been filling us with lies. God is not good. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. And now that you've rejected him, he's never going to take you back. You know, these are the lies of the devil And these words are powerful. They have polluted our view of God. They have polluted our view of one another. And they have polluted even our view of ourselves. And because we doubt God's goodness, because we doubt His goodness and His love and His grace, we are harsh towards Him, we are harsh towards other people, and we are harsh with ourselves. We say and we do mean, cruel, and unforgiving things. But the devil isn't the only one who has a voice in this game. He isn't the only one who is vying for your heart. God is too. The devil says that God is not good. But God says to you, My name is Yahweh, and I am the Lord, the God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger, and who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The devil says, God doesn't love you. But God says to you, can a woman forget her nursing child? Can a woman forget, can a woman fail to show compassion to the child of her womb? She may forget But I will never forget you. Look, behold, your name is engraved in the palm of my hands. The devil says that after all that you have done, after all those things that you have said and done, God is never going to take you back. He doesn't want to see your face again. But God says to you, I delight in you. For your sake, I will not keep silent. And for your sake, I will not be quiet until your righteousness goes forth as brightness and your salvation as a burning torch. You shall no more be termed forsaken, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. For I, the Lord, delight in you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall I, your God, rejoice over you. Do you hear what God is saying to you? Because they are very powerful words. But not only is God speaking these words to you, he has done something that the devil can never, ever do. God has proven the veracity of his speech. The devil can't do that. God has has proven the truthfulness of his words. He has put his money where his mouth is. 
I know that you want proof that God loves you. I know that you want proof that God is good. I know that you want proof that he hasn't forsaken you and that he's going to welcome you back. I know you want that proof. I want it too. And friends, the proof that we need is Jesus. The proof that you are looking for is Jesus. In Jesus, the kindness and tenderness and forgiving grace of God is on full display. Now, if you don't know Jesus, I really want you to. I really, really do. And I want you to fall in love with him. And if you do know Jesus already, I want you to fall more in love with him. But most of all, I want you to know how much he loves you. Jesus loves you. And he was willing to go to hell and back to to be with you so that you could be with him forever. And this, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. And when these words supplant the lies of the devil in your heart, your heart is going to be renewed from the inside out. You know, let's read verse 32 again, because the last five words in verse 32 are critical. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How are you going to win the war over your words? It begins when Jesus wins the war over your heart. You see, you begin to be kind and tender and loving when you begin to understand that God is kind and tender and loving towards you. You begin to be a kind person when you begin to understand just how God, how kind God has been to you in Jesus. You begin to be a tender person when you see just how tender God is in his care for you. You begin to be loving, and I mean really steadfastly loving, when you see just how steadfast and faithful God is in his love for you, and you begin to forgive other people and treat them with grace when you understand the forgiving grace of God. To the degree that you understand the gospel, to the degree that you understand the kindness and tenderness and loving, forgiving grace of God, your heart will be changed, and your words will be too. Let's pray.